Welcome to 5-Minute Mythstoria from the localmythstorian.com. Bite-sized chunks of curious history from Cheshire, Staffordshire and Derbyshire. And a little series I thought I'd share with you while I'm working on the next phase of the project. The search for markers of local history is of course far from confined to rural settings. And those with keen eyes will find plenty of signposts to the past around their local towns and cities that can open new windows into the events of bygone days. One such signpost, a plaque to be precise, is located halfway across the bridge at Winnington near Northwich in Cheshire. A cursory glance at which, one day while I was stuck in traffic, enlightened me to quite a remarkable story. While the impact of a conflict may have many measures, the macabre metre of death toll is unfortunately as insightful as any other, and sadly the most relevant. No more evident is this than the example of the civil wars, where an estimated 4% of the population of England, both military and civilian alike, met their end through violence, starvation and disease. At its eventual conclusion, King Charles I was executed and his son, the future King Charles II, sent away in exile to the continent. So it was only natural that Oliver Cromwell himself would become the figurehead of the nation, as he duly did with the title of Lord Protector. To describe the period of Cromwell's tenure as calm would be a bit much, but compared with the war-torn world that preceded it, a period of relief did begin to edge its way across the land. But it wouldn't last. Upon his death in 1658, the mantle of Lord Protector passed to his son, Richard Cromwell. However, tensions were high, and amidst growing scepticism and pressure from politicians and military commanders alike, pertaining to Richard's ability to deliver on their varied needs and demands. He was ultimately forced to resign less than a year after taking office. And it's this stage onto which the protagonists of our tale arrive. Sir George Booth of Dunham Massey had seen an active civil war as a parliamentarian courtesy of his grandfather's allegiance to whom he was heir. And come the end of hostilities, he found himself elected to Parliament as an MP for Cheshire before being appointed military commissioner for the county too. Despite his wartime allegiance to the parliamentarian cause, Booth had for some time been known to have a deep personal sympathy with the Royalist cause, a cause that, following the resignation of Richard Cromwell as Lord Protector, had found a new lease of life amongst the nobility, as the idea of returning to a rule of kingship became a viable option in the figure of the exiled Charles Stuart, son of King Charles I. Charles Stuart was actively moving for such a return and during the springtime of 1659 had begun to seek out potential supporters to stage it. In a matter of months, Booth became one of the most trusted figures in this new support base, named the Great Trust and Commission. And come August, he had received word from Charles to assume command of his would-be revolutionary forces throughout Cheshire. The rebels, however, in their overall sense, were both underprepared and rather insecure and details of their plans had been reported back to parliament meaning they needed to postpone the revolt. Booth however seems not to have been informed of the change of plan and so went ahead with mustering around 500 men at Warrington marching into the city of Chester in early August. The city's garrison retreated to the safety of Chester Castle and refused to capitulate. Booth then chose to press on with the overall plan regardless, making way for York before realising the uprising had already effectively failed and so, having turned back towards Chester on August 19th, he came face to face with the parliamentarian forces under Colonel John Lambert that had been sent to confront him at the bridge that crossed the River Weaver at Winnington, Northwich. 
Booth's forces had swollen by this point, with around 4,000 men stood with him on the high ground to the north of the bridge. Whilst even more were present under Lambert's command, with an estimated 5,000 troops ready to attack the Royalist positions. Lambert's force was made up of experienced troops, and in reality was far too strong for Booth's Royalist militia. A cavalry charge across the river was quickly followed with a short bout of hand-to-hand combat on the north banks before Booth's rebels scattered and fled. Thirty of his men lay dead in the mud. But the number would have been far higher were it not for the mercy of Lambert, who ordered his troops not to pursue them in the interest of preventing a massacre. Lambert would then go on to relieve Chester without resistance just two days later, and come the end of August, the whole region was firmly back within parliamentary control. Sir George Booth, though, was still on the run. He intended to head to London and then to France, as was the way of such escape lines, but it was not to be. While staying at an inn in Newport Pagnell, his disguise as a woman was blown when the innkeeper noticed the distinctly masculine tone of Booth's feminine character. He was arrested, it is said, while shaving, still dressed as a woman. A period of imprisonment in the Tower followed, but ultimately Booth was allowed his freedom and had by 1660 returned to Parliament. Because ultimately, Charles Stuart was crowned King Charles II in April 1661. Parliament had already decided that a king was needed as head of state, and so perhaps the idea of punishing his supporters before his arrival was deemed understandably short-sighted. Booth lived out his days in opposition to many policies of the Restoration government and died in 1684, buried in Bowdoin Church. His time at the forefront of the Cheshire Uprising long since put behind him.